Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined as usual by Terry Fakes for another book overview. This is actually a twofer because we are doing the books of First and Second Chronicles, which in the Jewish Bible have always been just one book. So why are they two? Well, I heard an interesting theory, which I cannot uh, either approve or disapprove, but it's if you write in Hebrew, you don't have vowels, so you just have consonants. And so needless to say, you can write uh, text in Hebrew, and it tends to be shorter. And so when you write it in Greek, you translate it into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you do have vowels. And so Greek writing tends to be longer. Well, since in those days they were writing on scrolls, and there's a limit as to how long a scroll could realistically be, uh, the idea was they split it up when they made the Septuagint. And our Protestant Bibles come from that tradition. And so we we have First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles as two books instead of one. So mystery solved. Yeah, so this is going to be a pretty short podcast now that we already know that. <laughs> Uh, you, you do forget that there are practical concerns on some of these right. books about how and and uh, how long and how they were written. First and Second Chronicles being one of those used to be just Chronicles. Now, I thought it was something for book sales or something like that uh, at the <laughs> Barnes and Noble in Jerusalem and in Babylon. There you go. Sort of like the Harry Potter uh Episode seven and eight, take that book and split it into two movies, kind of a thing. Yes. Yeah. Now, that could be true. That could be also. <clears throat> well, so two podcasts in a row now, we've done two. The last one being two of the shortest letters, and this one being two of the longer books of history in the Bible. And uh, as always, what we're really trying to do here is not cover every square inch of these books, but really more to be a reading guide. If you were going to sit down and read these, or if you were going to dive into a study of First and Second Chronicles, what is it that you would need to know? What's the background? What's the helpful framework? What are some of the problem passages you might hit? What's the author's intention that will guide you through the book? And so we're going to do a flyover. We're not going to talk as much about the content as we sometimes do, just because there is so much content in these two books. Right. But the second reason, and this is this is kind of an interesting phenomenon in the Old Testament, at least, it's... One of the reasons we're not hitting too much of the content is because we've already hit a lot of this content in the podcast on First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So one right. of the things we want to do is say, okay, if the content is roughly similar, and if you've been on a Bible reading plan that just reads straight through your Old Testament, you realize you've just now heard most of these stories two times in a row. Why do we need two of these? So that that's really the question we want to start with, even before we dive into the specifics of what happens in this book is, why do we even have this book in the first place? And I think that's where you have to start with First and Second Chronicles. And I will say that it's it's appropriate. We didn't plan it this way. We probably should say that we did, but we we could have planned it to where we did this towards the end, because it is one of the final words in the Old Testament. And so All we've right. done... Zechariah and Malachi towards the end here of our survey, doing First and Second Chronicles in our book overviews towards the end is appropriate because in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles, or as it's known to them, Chronicles, although that's not the title in Hebrew, which we'll talk about in a minute, is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Right. 
And I think that's really an interesting place to start with an overview of First and Second Chronicles is why is it the last book there? And what does that tell us about this book? That is a great observation, because if you think about the dating of this book, and I know you'll get into the author and dating in a minute, but the dating of this book of when are these, not when did these things happen? These things happen throughout history from uh, Saul and David and Solomon and all the kings down from 1000 BC, all the way down to the exile to Babylon in 586 BC. So these events are happening all through that time. But when was this book written down? Well, it is uh, almost certainly written down after the exile is over. And so everything that is being narrated here is a looking back and a summing up of things that have happened to address what's happening with the Israelites as they come back to the promised land. And so I think it's in from that point of view, it's really fitting that this is the last book in their Bible because it's written to the returning Jews after all these things have happened. What do you think, Cole? Yeah, that's there's there's no doubt that it was written after the exile. And the reasons that we know that are going from the most certain backwards would be at the very end of Second Chronicles, as we'll talk about, you get a little recording of the Israelites coming back. And so obviously you can't, it's not framed in a prophetic way, it's framed in a historical way saying this happened, therefore we we infer this really was written after this happened, because they're reporting it in the book. Now the second reason is because traditionally there's no attribution of the authorship within first and second chronicles but traditionally the jews have attributed the authorship to ezra and maybe a little bit to nehemiah and of course you would have to be after all these events took place but they also believe that ezra and nehemiah is one whole that is put together partly from ezra partly from nehemiah and then you have right. chronicles which is kind of a second part of that whole which is the history that those two working together compiled. And so for those reasons and several others, people think this is a post-exilic retelling of the history of Israel. So if the author is Ezra, there are also a lot of literary features that are similar between Ezra and the books of First and Second Chronicles. There's actually some information or some passages in First and Second Chronicles that look like adapted pieces of Ezra right. and Nehemiah. And so, of course, you have this little game with what scholars do with this, which is trying to decide which one takes priority. And so you have pieces of Ezra and Nehemiah that look like they've been changed a little bit. Therefore, First and Second Chronicles must have come later. That might be true. Of course, you also have the assumption most times with scholars that Ezra and Nehemiah probably didn't write Ezra and Nehemiah, and they certainly didn't write First and Second Chronicles. It's easier for us to say, is there any compelling reason to believe that the similarities are not due to the fact that the same person wrote both of them? That would probably be right. the easiest explanation is you're telling history in the same way in some of these passages because the author is actually the same. You know, so you see this other places, too, in the Bible where it's like, man, these are different. So we've got to come up with some schema to figure out which one is dependent on which. And then you say, well, what if they were just written by the same person? Or if the people that wrote right. them knew each other? That would be a really easy way to explain this. Right. It is the simplest way. In the New Testament, a great example of that is the letter 
that Paul wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians. And we know that he wrote them about the same time. He wrote them to two different cities, but they were delivered by the same messenger. And when you look at the book of Ephesians and Colossians, you will see that Colossians has some of the same wording and many of the same themes just shortened a little bit. Well, that's not difficult to see that that's the same author. I, I agree with you, Cole. I think the same thing happened here. The, the simplest explanation is it's the same author. Right. And that's what we're going to go with. I think it's the same author, or at mm -hmm. least it's in the same tradition to where if Ezra and Nehemiah are writing their books, they're working on these books, like we've talked about before, we, we never discount that there may have been a final editor on some of these that right. compiled and preserved. But by that, we don't mean editor as in editing the content as much as we mean somebody who preserved the work of earlier authors. Now, another thing that we need to talk about uh, with Chronicles is what's the difference or what's why did the Holy Spirit decide that we needed this in addition to what we already had? And that's where you get into a very interesting conversation about the differences between Chronicles and Samuel and Kings. Mm -hmm. Now, to back up a little bit, and we've talked about this in some earlier podcasts, there's a school of thought in the Old Testament, and it was really popular for a while. Now it's not quite as popular, but I think there's some truth to this, that there is a Deuteronomistic history, or at least a Deuteronomistic thread that runs through certain parts of the Old Testament. So that would be everything starting with Deuteronomy, going through Joshua, Judges, not really Ruth, uh, that's in there just kind of chronologically, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that all have a similar theological and historical outlook. They're drawing from the theology of Deuteronomy. They mm -hmm. are carrying basically the same storyline of Israel. They're operating on a lot of the same assumptions. We don't think that they were all written by the same person, but they're certainly in the same theological vein. What you realize when you get into First and Second Chronicles is it is from a different theological vein. It is talking about the same history. It's reporting the same facts, but it's arranging and talking about them with a little bit different theme in mind. And that's right. the key to really understanding why we need two of these. What I would liken it to is we know that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were closer to the action than Chronicles. The other thing we know is because it references the Book of Kings, First and Second Chronicles likely has access or knowledge of the account in Kings and in Samuel. So right. it's very much like what you have in the New Testament, where you have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke which are telling about the same events. Basically, there's some literary dependence. There's probably some life experience dependence. These people knew each other. They've talked to some of the same people, and they're telling the story of Jesus. Then you have John come along and say, I know you guys know all the basic stories, so I don't have to give you the straight timeline report of what happened. Instead, right. what I want to do is I want to zoom in on some of the things and make a little bit more specific point than Luke did here, or than Mark did there, or than Matthew did in his gospel. I actually want to paint a couple of themes I don't think came out quite as strongly and round out this picture of Jesus. What the what the book of Chronicles does is very similar. Okay, you know the stories from the time of Samuel all the way through to the exile. 
What I want to do, says the author, is I want to paint this in a little bit different light so that you can see another aspect of what's true in the history of Israel. So think about it as the difference between the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel. They're reporting on the same thing. They fundamentally agree with each other, but they are coming from a different angle to show something else that's true in the centerpiece of their historical account. That is really insightful, Cole. I think that's exactly what's happening. We still do this today. Let me give you another example. So a preacher in America might take a parable of Jesus or a passage from the text and preach that and apply it to a 21st century American audience. There's a preacher in Nigeria the same Sunday preaching the same passage and talking to that group of people, and the application is going to sound different. Now, the content is the same, and they both agree with the truth of the passage, but obviously the passage is going to speak to the people in their time and in their situation. And I think that Chronicles being written later to Jews who were coming back after having been exiled, and they're just completely dejected, is very different hearing than Samuel King's, which is written to Israelites at the time when they were there and they were living in the land. And so you you get the same events, but they're speaking to the people at a different time and place. Mm-hmm. That, to me, just makes so much sense out of the book of Chronicles, especially the way the Jewish Bible has it. In English, tucked right up next to the other story, you kind of think it's just a retelling. But if we told you that Kings and Chronicles were separated by centuries, maybe, and speaking to Israel at different times, you'd say, oh, this makes perfect sense why Chronicles was written the way it was. So I think you're right about that, Cole. The other, the, the final point in, in preparation for studying these books is the Hebrew and Greek names of Chronicles also play out the dynamic we've just been talking about. So in the Hebrew, though, the title of Chronicles is something like the annals or uh, the events of the years. So it presents itself a little bit more like Kings and, and Samuel. In the Greek, however, it's titled something that means the supplement or the leftovers or something like that, yeah. which is not exactly leftovers because there's not a ton of information that's presented that's not mentioned at all in Kings and and in Samuel, but it definitely puts emphasis in different places. The way we get Chronicles is actually because of Martin Luther's title, which he titled it Chronicles, effectively translated into Chronicles, and that's what we've called it ever since. And so you get a supplement to these books, and think about it less as a historical supplement and more of a theological supplement, like you were talking about, to a people telling the story of a people at a different time in their history. So they're going to see it a little bit differently, but it's fundamentally the same story. Now, when you dive into the book, this becomes obvious in the in the beginning of it that we're doing something different because this book starts with Adam. In fact, at the very beginning, yeah. uh, you get this genealogy that runs for nine chapters. And this is a, this is a Bible reading plan killer in the beginning of First Chronicles, you get nine chapters of genealogies, census data, divisions between families. But notice right at the beginning that you get Adam at the very beginning. And uh, in the last pericope, which is the last story group of uh, Second Chronicles, you get the line, in the first year of Cyrus. 
So you've run from the very beginning of creation all the way up to what is kind of a recreation of the people of Israel, the call to come back from exile. And that entire span is what Chronicles is talking about. So you get a genealogy at the beginning from the beginning of creation, and you end at this new creation of the people of Israel that are coming back from exile. And that's going to take us up to the time of Christ when these people have regathered in the Holy Lands. Huge scope starting out this book. This is much Uh bigger than what you see in the Deuteronomistic history. That, That spans from Sinai to people leaving in exile. This spans from the creation to the coming back of the exiles. Right. It's a more comprehensive view. And I think that's a really great way to introduce it. But, you know, why start with nine chapters of genealogy? And I'll give you a couple of thoughts here. And we Oklahomans, those of us that live in Oklahoma that are hearing this are going to understand this because in Oklahoma, there are Native American tribes and there are benefits to being a member of one of these tribes, a descendant, and they have rules. And you have to demonstrate your lineage to be a certain percentage of a certain tribe to be on the tribal roles. Well, I think one of the reasons that you begin this is you've got all these Jews coming back from all around the world, coming back to Israel. And how are you going to legitimate what the Jewish people look like and what better way than to start with the genealogies of all of the tribes, all the way from Adam, all the way down to the tribes. And so I wonder, and this is conjecture on my part, if starting out with all of this is a reminder of who are the Israelites as they come back from being scattered around the world. Right. I think I think that's right. And to go a little bit further into that, one of the things you realize pretty quickly in this genealogy is that the book of Chronicles is concerned mostly with the Levites. You know, right. it's told from a Levite perspective. Some people have argued it involves the Levites. It's just obvious as you read through it. But when you get into the genealogy, you really begin to see that this is a Levite-centered book. And that actually is secondary to one of the main themes of this book. It is a temple-centered book. And if you're going to have a temple-centered book, then you have to have a Levite-centered book because the Levites are the tribe of Israel who are the priests who have been charged with all the goings-on of the temple. So some of the information that you get in Chronicles that you don't get anywhere else is what David did to select and break up and reorganize the Levites to work in the tent, and then later on in the temple when Solomon builds the temple. And so you get an organization of temple worship in Chronicles that you don't mm-hmm. see anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, you you don't get as much organization in any book of the Bible as you do in Chronicles. It's really a book about how to worship in the same way that a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Leviticus is a little bit different take on the law than Exodus and Deuteronomy, partially because it's centered on the Levites. Chronicles is a little bit different take on the history because it's centered on the Levites and temple worship. Mm-hmm. So there's a continuity here with what we see. And if you go to First Chronicles chapter 6, you start to see the divisions in the family of Levi. And I'll point out a couple of things here that are interesting. If you get down into verse 22, you have the sons of Kohath, Aminadab, and his son Korah. Well, the sons of Korah, you'll remember from the book of Psalms in the 40s and in the 80s, the sons of Korah have written several psalms, and those psalms are all concerned with worship in the temple, which makes total sense when you remember 
These were the people who were the singers that David appointed for temple mm-hmm. worship. They're songwriters, they are song leaders, they're musicians. They are leading the worship in the temple. And so they write these psalms that we have passed down in, in the mid-40s and in the early 80s of, of our psalm book that they would have led and penned for the people of Israel. So you get the account of who these guys are, what their genealogy is, why they have a right to be worshiping the way they are in the temple, how David divided them. It says in verse 31, these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. Uh, you get... Haman, you get Asaph, uh, son of Berechiah. These are also names that show up in our psalm book. And Mm -hmm. this explains why they were doing what they were doing at the time. They're the branch of the Levites who were in charge of worship. Another kind of interesting thing is when you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you get this really long song. And that song is actually a mosaic of four different psalms, all from book four of our book of Psalms. And so you have reflected in Chronicles some of these Psalms that were used in temple worship, and we see how they were written, who they were written by. We have them in our book of Psalms, and then we have a a record of how they were used in the temple for worship. And so all of this plays into this Levite-centric, temple worship-centric theme in Chronicles. And you can really only get that by wading through this genealogy, which otherwise is kind of difficult to get through, but you start to see little glimpses of why they might have included this with the aim that they had with the book of Chronicles. Uh, absolutely. I think that and those are interesting connections, Cole. I hope that that's enough to sustain people in their reading plan through all nine chapters of those genealogies. But there are little gems in there, and it's interesting to know why you're reading it, at least to know why you're reading it and what's important. But it moves on then. The bulk of the book is uh, probably the centerpiece is about uh, David and Solomon. Would that run from about chapter 11 of First Chronicles through about chapter 9 of Second Chronicles is the basically the David-Solomon story and everything about them. Kind of a high point, if you will, because this is when David conquers the Philistines, he acquires Jerusalem, he unites Israel uh, militarily and and securely, and then, of course, passing on to his son Solomon, who builds the temple. This is the centerpiece of really the Jewish people. It's the, the golden age, if you will. Yeah, so think about this as a number line. If you have the genealogy running from 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, and then if you notice 1 Chronicles 10 is the story of Saul, in about 14 verses. So it's like you've Mm -hmm. taken a number line and you've taken a magnifying glass and you've focused it in on David and Solomon. So you get nine chapters of everything before them. You get a bunch of chapters, you know, almost 30 chapters of David and Solomon. And then at the end, in 2 Chronicles 10 through 36, you get all of the later kings, which is another almost 500 years of history, but we are focused on this piece of history, David and Solomon. And one of the other things that is interesting is the chronicler doesn't focus on the shortcomings of David and Solomon nearly as much as Samuel and Kings do. Partially, again, some, sometimes in the scholarship that you read on this book, it's like this is a PR campaign to rehabilitate David and Solomon. I take it a little bit less as that as I do 
the chronicler is aware that the people know the shortcomings of David. So, for example, in First and Second Kings, or in First and Second Samuel, you get the story of David and Bathsheba. So that's a well-known story. It's a major shortcoming of David. You don't see that mentioned at all in First and Second Chronicles. You have Bathsheba mentioned in the genealogy. So obviously Solomon's line coming through, you get mm-hmm. her mentioned, but you don't have the story mentioned at all. Same thing with some of Solomon's foibles. You don't, you don't have those mentioned. Instead, what you have are the right and just and glorifying parts of their reign. Because what the author is, is trying to show us is the root of the people of Israel, especially in the land, is the reign of David, the covenant that God makes with him, and the temple that God comes down to dwell in during the reign of Solomon. That's the main thing the author wants to remind the people of. Do you remember what God did through our father David? Do you remember what he did when Solomon built the temple? Okay, that's what he's going to do again. Think book of Haggai, think books of Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding the glory of the Lord will come into the temple again. What this chronicler is doing is saying, if you remember what happened there, you really grasp the heart of what, God was doing in Israel. It was in this time with these two guys. I think you're exactly right, because these Israelites coming back from exile, the ones in the north that were scattered in 722 BC, they've been gone for uh, you know over 200 years, scattered around. And then the ones from Judah, the southern, and Jerusalem, they've been gone you know, for 70 years. They've had plenty of time to think about and meditate on and repent of all of their faithlessness and all of their shortcomings. What do they need to be reminded of? And the chronicler says, you need to be reminded that, yes, you have been disciplined by the Lord, but don't forget the blessings of the Lord. And that is really focused around the David Solomon story. I think you're exactly right. He's not whitewashing it. He's simply telling the people to remember the glory and what God has done for them and to encourage them that God will do that again. Yeah, there's an interesting parallel. I was thinking about this, preparing for talking about this. I was trying to conceive of, okay, you know, sometimes people jump into this and they say, okay, well, this person is really whitewashing the history of Israel. And I thought, well, what would be an example of something that we think about this way? And I had been reading an article in, I think it was in the, um, Claremont Review of Books, that Alan Gelzo, who's a fantastic historian, was reviewing Mm -hmm. a series of books by a guy named Alan Taylor. And Taylor's written a series called American Revolutions and then American Republics. And I think there may be one more in the series. And, uh, and, And Gelzo starts out the review by saying, why do you write history? And even more than that, why do you write the history of a country when the ethos of the history is no one is proud of their country. He said, you used to have these giant magisterial histories of the West, of the United States, of America. You don't see very many of those anymore. And one of the reasons is people don't read books the same way they used to. They don't read books that are quite as long. But the second reason is it's hard to find people in the academy who have the same level of pride and admiration for the history of the country that they did 100 years ago. So he says, Mm -hmm. so now you have this author come along, and he's telling a very different story about America. It's not that he's telling a false story. It's just that he's picking up on all these threads that would lead you to the conclusion that America is really not that great a country. And so he says, you know, 
the reason Taylor's selling books is because that's the ethos of the time. He's telling history truthfully, but in a way that suits what he thinks people want to hear or need to hear. Right. And I think he may not be doing that as consciously as he is telling the history as he sees it, but based on the waters that he swims in. So what what Gelzo starts to talk about, though, is it's very difficult when you get to the point where you've you've come from a place that was like, oh, you have these great histories. And the criticism is we need to include some of the not so great things. Okay, sure enough, historians do that. That's a good way to write history. But then you arrive at a point in time where all you can tell are the not so great periods of history. It's right. like, you know, here's the history of warts and all, but then you arrive at a nothing but warts kind of history. <laughs> right. Then what you need after that is to pick out the things that were genuinely great, whether it's the history of America or a specific person or a society, pick out the things that are genuinely admirable, knowing the flaws and present that version for people to admire and recapture. That's basically what's happened here in Chronicles. Everybody mm -hmm. knows the the warts in the history of Israel because they have just been exiled for it. They get, right. as you said, they have repented of, they've meditated on, they understand the reasons that they were sent into exile. What the author of First and Second Chronicles is doing is saying, yeah, but do you remember why God did all these amazing things to the people of Israel in the first place? Do you remember what was so great about David and the temple and God dwelling among us? Do you remember the promise of Abraham in the beginning and why God chose Israel and did all these mighty wonders with Israel anyway? It's not ignoring the bad parts, but in a time where you're only focusing on the bad parts, it comes and mm -hmm. takes the things that really are good and noble and praiseworthy and reminds people of those things. And all of a sudden you get the best parts of David the best parts of Solomon, the best parts of the temple, the best parts of the history of Israel set on display because what this author wants to tell people is don't make the same mistakes again. Do the things right. that God was pleased with in the first place. And all through this big middle section, you get the praiseworthy things that David and Solomon did. You get what it looks like to be a worshiper of God, the presence of God in the temple, how to worship him correctly, how the Levites were supposed to do their work and what they did well. Uh, even David, the end of David's life is kind of an interesting contrast. In the end of David's life in 1 Kings, you see him as a frail old man. You get the story of Abishag keeping him warm. Mm -hmm. But at the end of 1 Chronicles chapter 29, you get a glorious picture of David because it's looking at the things that he did well. The The summary statement, the, then David, the son of Jesse, reigned over Israel, and the time that he reigned was 40 years, seven in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. He died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor, and Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer, with the accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. So what you have is, hey, I'm telling you this to remind you of the golden age of David. But if you want to go look up the rest of the story, which you probably already know, you could go look it up in these accounts. It's a different right. kind of history writing. It really is. And, you know, honestly, the more you talk about that, the more I think we need a chronicler for America today to remind us, of, wait a minute, there are some noble and some good things. But if you think about uh, the Israelites at this time ejected, 
they're coming back to a land. They've got a makeshift temple until Nehemiah. They don't even have a wall around Jerusalem. You've got a dejected group of people. Well, what do they need to hear? They need to hear the truth. But the particular truth they need to hear is that God hasn't forgotten them. And like you said, do the things that are honoring to God and God will bless you. That's what they needed to hear. And that's what this is, is writing. In the beginning of Second Chronicles, you shift to the reign of Solomon. You get the story of Solomon praying for wisdom, asking God for uh, the wisdom he needs to rule over his people, getting great wealth. And then you get a long section on preparing the temple. One little curiosity here that's interesting is in chapter 3, verse 1, when Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. If you remember in Genesis chapter 22, this is Mount Moriah is where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Now, that mountain has been disputed as to where that mountain is. But because we have 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we know that Mount Moriah and Mount Zion, or where the temple mount was built, are the same place, the same mountain. Because in the other accounts of Jerusalem, you don't see this mountain called Mount Moriah. You right. see, you see it called actually several other things, several not, things, mm-hmm. not Mount Moriah. So this is a really nice connection back to the life of Abraham, letting us know this is in the exact same spot. Now it also turns out that Jesus is crucified on this exact same mountain. It's kind of a little range of mountains, but he's on this same spot. Jesus is crucified, mm-hmm. and that's where the temple was. That's where Abraham was. The Jews actually believe it's where. Adam was created out of the dust. We have no biblical right. evidence of that, but why not at this point throw in another story? But it is a very <laughs> significant mountain. Uh, and so this is just a nice little uh, re- intertextual reference. The The first part of Second Chronicles is almost all about furnishing and building the temple. And the mm-hmm. climax of this story is in Second Chronicles, starting in chapter 6, going all the way through chapter 7. It's very similar to the story in 2 Kings chapter 8, which is the high point of the king's narrative when it comes to dedicating the temple. But you get a really interesting narration of what happens when Solomon dedicates the temple. So starting in chapter 6, he begins all the festivities. Then in chapter 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This is similar, but a little bit different than what you read in 1st and 2nd Kings. And I think the reason is because it's showing the continuity of the worship of God in the tent of meeting, in David's tent, in the wilderness tabernacle, and in the temple. That The real central focus is that the presence and the glory of God comes down into the temple and he dwells there and he dwells among his people and they worship him. That's one of the central points of this entire account. And so you see a little bit more detail, a little bit more resonance with the earlier accounts of exactly what happened on that day when Solomon dedicated the temple. And I do think there's a a strong sense of continuity there. Again, I keep hitting the idea of remember what what the Israelites are at this point coming back is they're going to build a temple and it's not going to be anywhere near as nice as Solomon's. It's going to be just really tiny. But one of the things to remind them of is it's not the building, it's the glory and the presence of the Lord. And so I think this story is expanded a little bit to remind them, even though our building isn't very nice, 
the same God dwells in that building. So if you think about it, you get a lot of respect for the chronicler of the, the writer of Chronicles. And then Ezra is who I also think it is. You get a lot of respect for them to highlight the things to encourage Israel and remind them of some truths that are that just connect them with the Israel of old. And I think it's a brilliant a reminder to Israel in a way to rebuild the nation of Israel. And Nehemiah built, rebuilt the wall, but there's actually a rebuilding of the people that needs to happen. So if we if we zoom out and we look at the rest of the book, starting in 2 Chronicles 10, you get Solomon's sons, the divided kingdom, all the way down. Mostly the focus in Chronicles is on Judah. The reason for that is because that's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. That's where the Levites are. So if you've got a Levitical temple-centered book, that's where all the action is going to happen. And so they basically cover majority Judah through the end of the book. One of the things you notice if you're comparing Chronicles and Kings is the kings of Judah get a better evaluation in Chronicles than they do in Kings. So for example, in chapter 28, Ahaz is the only person in Chronicles who is judged completely bad. I mean, just totally bad. Yeah. Whereas in first and second Kings, almost everybody is bad except for Hezekiah and Josiah. You get a few little bright spots. The chronicler is just a little bit more optimistic altogether in what these Kings were doing there's a little more nuance in their religious reforms. Ahaz, though, is a son of Saul. He is a bad king. Like Saul in the beginning uh, of First Chronicles chapter 10, he's represented as almost all bad. And then you get Hezekiah, who, like David, is almost all good at the end. Right. So you get a little bit different shades here. The most surprising one is in chapter 33, Second Chronicles chapter 33. You get Manasseh, who's the son of Hezekiah. And in First and Second Kings, he is one of the worst kings. There's nothing good said about him in First and Second Kings. However, you see that at the end, uh, in this account, he repents and begins to make some changes and even reforms Israel a little bit. And so, it's again another supplement to First and Second Kings. I wouldn't say it's necessarily contradictory as much as it is. Mm-hmm. Hold on, let's go back and focus on this one event that I think carries a little bit more weight than what you read about in First and Second Kings. And I want to tell you that there was a bright spot in his life, even though he did do a lot for the worship of Baal and Asherah. It's like telling the story of the thief on the cross. We don't really know all the bad things. We know there were a lot that led up to it. The point that the Gospels want to make is that he repented. And I think that's exactly what's happening here is, look, you guys all know what Anasa did. You've been told that many times. But I want to tell you there's a bright spot. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's exactly what's happening. And then my favorite part is his grandson, Josiah. I, that is one of the neatest, uh, chapter 34, where they find the book of the law which tells us something about how unfaithful they were. But Josiah is doing some uh, remodeling, and uh, they actually find the book of the law and read it to Josiah. And it says in 3419, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And he said, great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. And so this, that to me, that's one of the most dramatic things. And Josiah reinstituting the Passover and reading the law to the people. 
It's a, it's a renewal, if you will, of faith. We might call it uh, a reformation movement for the Jews. And that's one of the really cool stories at the end. And it begins a trajectory at the end of Second Chronicles that's markedly different than the end of Second Kings. The end of Second Chronicles is a story of hope. There is mm-hmm. hope for the people of Israel. They find the law. Josiah keeps the Passover in chapter 35. Judah declines. They are sent into exile. But then at the very end, we begin verse 22 of chapter 36. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which we already know, Cyrus is the one that sends the Jews back. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled from the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. You get the release and the return of all the exiles that come back to Jerusalem. You get the edict of Cyrus, according to the word of Jeremiah. Again, Mm -hmm. I'll just point out something that's interesting here. Jeremiah plays a huge role at the end of Second Chronicles compared to a very small role in First and Second Kings. Partially because Jeremiah is a priest. So he's from a Levitical family. He is the star. (laughs) Isaiah (laughs) is from a royal family, most likely, not a priest. He plays a big role. He's he's obviously in the time of Hezekiah. But Jeremiah is really the star in 2 Chronicles. And I think that's because he may have been a family member of a lot of the people that are involved in this book. Probably not a family member of Ezra and Nehemiah but a family member of many of these priests who are doing the work of the temple in the newly rebuilt temple in is in in Jerusalem when the people come back. And so again, mm-hmm. you just see this preference for a, a different storyline than is in first and second Kings here at the end of second Chronicles. You know, if you were uh, kind of uh, my closing thought on Chronicles here, if, if you were going to encourage a people who were coming back after suffering uh, the judgment of the faithlessness of their fathers and the fact that they hadn't served God. One of the things you would want to emphasize is when our people were faithful to God, God protected us. And I would tell that story over and over and over. And sure enough, in Chronicles, you'll read that story as it happened, that when Israel was faithful to God, God preserved Israel. Uh, David was faithful and God defeated all their enemies. Solomon was faithful. And here is the temple. You would want to tell them, look, you have a choice today as you go forward. Will you return to faithfulness to God or will you not? And this is exactly the story that any one of us would want to tell if that's what we were trying to achieve. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.